prophet to deliver to God's chosen but disobedient people. So we have to keep that in mind. God's people are not walking with the Lord. And so what happens? Well, God has sent his word. And the nation was to be built upon the word of God. And so God's word goes out. And the king, he was in Deuteronomy chapter 17, that he was to write out the word of God, the first five books of the Bible. And as he did, he would know the word of God and what was expected of him. But the kings turned their hearts away from the Lord. And so God would speak to them. But when they wouldn't listen, God would raise his voice by sending a prophet. And so in Jeremiah 13 here tonight, we're going to be looking at five parables. Parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. God is using a well-known reality here on earth to illustrate his heavenly points. The first one is going to be a parable using a physical illustration. The other four will be parables using verbal descriptions at this time. We saw it a couple of weeks ago. King Josiah has been killed in battle with Egypt, and his son Eliakim is now upon the throne. Eliakim, he had his name changed because King Josiah was killed by the Egyptians, and so the Egyptians have put Judah, the southern kingdom, under tribute. And so Eliakim, although he is king, he is under the thumb, if you will, of Egypt. Egypt even changed his name to Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim has... He ruled from uh, 609 B.C. to 598 B.C. He had one of those testimonies, though, that are not so pleasant and that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. It's amazing that your testimony, your testimony will continue to reverberate throughout the ages, how much more so when it's published for the ages in the Word of God that it was one that was of evilness. The testimonies that we build today have such a great opportunity to either add to the kingdom of God or detract from the kingdom of God in the future, something we need to always consider. So for Judah, just even as our country, it's a time of bondage to the world, but God's got a message for them. Keeping in mind kind of this backdrop, a lot of times we can see some of the familiar New Testament scriptures we can see that how they're backed up by the Old Testament, and maybe even the writer of the New Testament was thinking towards the Old Testament. But in this time of, of Jeremiah and what's going on, James 4.4 4 came to my mind. Adulterers and adulteresses, because we'll see that will be one of the illustrations used. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Well, the northern kingdom had done that. They sought after their well-being from the surrounding nations, and then finally one of those nations turned on them. Assyria came in and conquered them. They made themselves with a friend of the world and in turn made themselves an enemy of God. And even Judah, as we're going to be seeing, these warnings that have been given, they ignored that and they became a friend of the world but an enemy of God. So the first parable that we have is one of a linen sash. Look at verses 1 and 2. Thus the Lord said to me, Go and get yourself a linen sash and put it around your waist, but do not put it in water. So I got a sash according to the word of the Lord and put it around my waist. A sash would be a common piece of clothing used to keep your outer garments in place. 
kind of like a belt or a cummerbund. Some translations will call it a girdle, but it was definitely not something that was worn under the garment. The idea was for it to be worn on the outside, and it was to be very noticeable because God's wanting to make this illustration of what he's speaking of here. And even the decorating of a sash, it could be used to denote your social status, your economic status, or your political status. It is to be, well, there could very well be a message that is um, communicated through it as well. Again, as far as whatever your status may be, we see one at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 19, verse 16. More than likely, this is what is being described as far as the Lord in his second coming. It says he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so a sash could be this wide and long piece of material. And a lot of times there's kind of a tail, if you will, that would kind of hang off of it. A linen sash would need to be kept dry because water would cause it to rapidly deteriorate for the point to be made. Again, this sash more than likely was very colorful and it was definitely noticeable because this message is not meant to just be a message to the prophet, but this is a message through the prophet to the people. Look at verses 3 through 7. And the word of the Lord came to me a second time. So the first time was to get the sash and to put it around his waist and to wear it around. And now after a period of time, the second time the word came to him, saying, verse 4, Take the sash that you acquired, which is around your waist, and arise and go to the Euphrates and hide it there in a hole in the rock. And so I went and hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. Now it came to pass after many days that the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates, Euphrates River, and take from there the sash which I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug, and I took the sash from the place where I had hidden it, and there was the sash ruined. It was profitable for nothing. From Jerusalem to the Euphrates, this is an act of obedience because it's about a 300-mile journey. If he walks 30 miles a day, it's determined that an army that it was determined to get somewhere would be able to march for 30 miles in one day, but it would be a hard march. Let's just say Jeremiah did that. That's 10 days of, of travel. Probably took him a lot longer than that, and it wouldn't necessarily be safe, although he is in the will of God and God kept him. A sash that is treated in this manner would be, as we see at the last part of verse 7, it was profitable for nothing. In our terminology, the idea here is it now, because it's been ruined by the waters, the dampness, and the mud, and all of this, it's good for absolutely nothing. Keeping in mind in this illustration that we have to make it applicable to our lives. We have to make it applicable to the church. And so that which has an intended purpose and can be very profitable for that intended purpose, if it is used improperly, if it is abused, then it is good for nothing. And so we as individuals within the body of Christ want to be used for God's glory. But if I'm not used according to God's intended purpose for me, then I'm not good for his purposes. I'm not going to say I'm not good for nothing, but not good for what God wants to, or how God wants to use me in his kingdom. If we are not fulfilling God's intended purpose, then really, what good are we? And Jesus even used this illustration in John 15, 6. If anyone does not abide in me, if we don't live our lives in Christ, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burnt. And the idea is, is that they're not good for their purpose. Matthew 25, 29 through 30 says, For to everyone who has, more will be given, 
and he will have an abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away and cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The believer who at one point was so useful for the service of the Lord, but has become unprofitable, there's that despair of being set upon the shelf and no longer used. And you probably know of some pastor or some leader or whatever, so effective for God's kingdom at one point was so used by the Lord and for his glory, but through sin and disobedience has become unprofitable to the Lord. That's a sad occurrence. How much more so here? We're speaking of a nation. We're speaking of the kingdom of Judah. So consider what the significance of the Euphrates would be in relationship to the sash. Now, the sash would be representative of God's people and Israel and how Israel was to be the sash around the waist of the Lord. And it was to speak of how grand and glorious God has been to them. And and now it's it's basically been ruined. Why? Because it was immersed in the Euphrates. It was immersed in the river. It was immersed in the water. They're no longer able to achieve their purpose of glorifying God because in actuality they've been immersed in the world. They are intended to be a sash of eloquence worn by the Lord that would speak volumes of his love, of his grace, and his compassion. Again, how do we know God? We know God by his word. We know God through his creation, but through one another. As I see God working in your life and the work that he has done in your life through your testimony and even through today as you're filled with the Holy Spirit, we see these examples of God or these realities of God and they point towards who he is. And the greater the testimony, the more God is magnified. But as far as this sash and this illustration for Judah and and how we need to be careful, the idea is they're immersed in the waters of the world. And when you're immersed in the waters of the world, what are the waters of the world? Be human wisdom, intellect, or philosophies. It destroys us from our intended purposes. How can I possibly glorify God if I am saturated by human intellect, human thought, or human philosophies? It's these things which detract from the word of God and the reality of the word of God working in us and through us. And again, we see this this reality within our own society as we send our kids ill-prepared off to college or out into the world or whatever it might be, and, and they're confronted by the philosophies of the world, the intellect of the world. And what happens again when you, when you join those two together, they're not going to be able to fulfill the purposes that God has. And so we have to be diligent about teaching and training our children in the ways of the Lord that they do not become saturated with those things from the world. Again, God spoke very clearly on his intent for Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. Part of his closing words, all of Deuteronomy is, before they entered into the promised land. For you are a holy people. Now when he says holy people, holy has the idea of separated. God has separated these people from the world. You are a holy people. You're to be set apart. You're holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. They were to be a fancy sash, if you will, a glorious sash that was around the waist of the Lord. So being saturated with the world's ways, they have become good for nothing. And we kind of saw this contrast a few weeks ago when we were studying Second Kings and the Syrian general Heaman. 
Haman, he goes to Elijah. He's got leprosy, and he's been directed there. And Elijah tells him, go over to the Jordan River and immerse yourself, dunk yourself seven times, and you'll be healed. Well, he's probably went over that, and he saw it. And I I even posted a picture when we were in Israel of the Jordan River. Now, this is the Jordan River that is parallel, speaking of latitude-wise, parallel with um, Jerusalem. And in that area, it has gone through the wilderness for a period of time, and the waters have become brown. And it's kind of an ugly river. And, you know, I was, when we do the baptizing in in Israel, it's right outside of the mouth of the uh, Sea of Galilee. And the waters there are crystal clear. You can see down to the bottom. But again, after going through that wilderness, they pick up soot and they pick up mud. Because before we got there, I'm thinking, well, I wonder why we don't baptize people over here. Because this is the traditional place where Jesus was baptized. And you get there, and the river's probably as white as these chairs here. And you see, and it's just brown and murky. And you're thinking, there's no way in the world I'm getting in there. Especially to be dunked in that. I don't know if they'll be able to pull you up out. Well, he, amen, thought the same thing. But see, the problem with him is God had told him to dunk himself in that river. But he's thinking, according to human intellect, well, the Abana and the Parfar rivers of Damascus, they're better than this. And in essence, what he was saying, I'd rather dunk myself in the rivers of human intellect than God's command. But the problem when you dunk yourself in the rivers of human intellect, it does absolutely nothing for you. And actually, he could dunk himself until the cows come home, and sooner or later, he would have died. But he had an assistant that said, if he would have told you to do something difficult, you would have done, you know, how hard is it to follow through with what God tells us to do? And he goes and he dunks himself in the Jordan, and that seventh time he comes up, our our theme for the woman's uh, tea this Sunday, or Saturday, white as snow white as snow, and completely healed because he did what he was supposed to do. And so Israel here is not doing what they're supposed to do. I say Israel, it's the southern kingdom of Judah. Matter of fact, they're saturated with human intellect. Verses 8 through 11. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, In this manner I will ruin the pride of Judah, the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who follow the dictates of their hearts and walk after other gods to serve them and worship shall be just like this sash, which is good for nothing, which is profitable for nothing. For as the sash clings to the waist of a man, so I have caused the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah, he's speaking of northern kingdom and southern kingdom, to cling to me, says the Lord, that they may become my people for renown, for praise, and for glory, but they would not hear. And what's the common phrase that exists in the book of Revelation? He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. And the idea is, as you look at Revelation and the way it's laid out, in that judgment's coming. Tribulation is coming. And so he's got seven churches and five of them he had something against. And so he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Why? Why is he wanting them to hear here? Hear, hear, hear at this place? Because there's always that opportunity to change. There's always that opportunity to stop going in the wrong direction and start going in God's direction. God, because he's gracious and because he's merciful, is giving them an opportunity. Matter of fact, in chapter 13, back in Revelation, forward in Revelation, 
after the church age, even in the midst of the trials that are going on, God says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Now, he doesn't say what the Spirit says to the churches because the churches have been raptured. But he's still giving an opportunity for change, for repentance to come, even in the midst of the tribulation, because God desires that no man should, be, should perish. So just as a rotting sash is ugly and of no use, so are the people who have forsaken God. And so here, once again, is presented this contrast between the ways of the Lord and the ways of the world. And the ways of the world can be such an attraction. So, it can be so easy just to, just to compromise a little bit. Just to compromise a little bit, but a little bit of compromise can do such great damage. I, I think I've mentioned this before. One of my daughters was down, and she said, you know, even in the times when I wasn't walking with the Lord, one of the things that really spoke to their heart was just because, and this was the Lord in us, but you and mom, or I think she was talking to my wife, so you and dad, you never compromised on the things that you said were important. And what she was saying was the things that you determined was important when we were raising them were the things that we determined are still important even today. And not compromising in that speaks volumes. We've got to understand that. You've got to know that. That if it was sin or if it was a conviction back then, it needs to be a conviction today. He who endures to the end will be saved. And although this isn't really a salvation issues that I'm talking about, but there's still this witness that goes out. We're told in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, to not be conformed to the world, but transformed through the renewing of our minds. Don't be conformed. Conform, that's to be, have these exterior pressures placed upon you that pushes you into the mold of the world. Well, that's what's happening with Judah and has already happened with Israel. Don't be conformed to the ways of the world, but be transformed. A transformation, that's an inward power that works in you and works through you. Well, how does that happen? Through the renewing of your mind. And we know that our minds are renewed through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the Word of God. And so apart from that, we're good for nothing. We're of absolutely no use to the Lord. So we have this parable of the sash. It was to be clinging to God. It was to be glorious, pointing towards who God is, that the Gentiles who would see it would see Israel and realize that the thing that set them apart from all the nations of the world was their relationship with God. But instead of being something grand and glorious, it became something that was rotting. We need to make sure that our witness for the Lord does not rot, does not be rendered of no use, but is still giving glory to God in all areas and all situations and circumstances. Secondly, we have the parable of the wineskins, verses 12 through 14. Therefore you shall speak to them this word. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, every bottle shall be filled with wine, and they shall say to you, do we not certainly know that every bottle will be filled with wine? Then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land, even the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. And I will dash them one against another, even the fathers and the sons together, says the Lord. I will not pity nor spare nor have mercy, but will destroy them. 
When it says bottles, the original language, it, it more than likely be better translation wineskins because that's what they used back in the day. But wine, wine in the scripture is a symbol of prosperity and it's a symbol of joy. It's a symbol of prosperity because that means you had a bountiful harvest and you were able to harvest much grapes. Joy, it's because it was used in celebrations. And so God's people would be joyous because they've been prosperous by the hand of the Lord. But the problem is the leaders, the leaders were using this for fleshly excess. They were getting drunk off it and they were ignoring God who the source of all good things were. And so God's intent for the line of leadership, we looked at this before, number one would be the prophet. Why? Because the prophet would be the one who would deliver the word of God. He would deliver it to the next in line, which would be the priest. The priest would be the teacher of the word of God. After that would be the potentate, in order to keep using P words, but that would be the king. And so the king would rule by the word of God, and last in line would be the people. And the people would receive the benefit of these people who were seeking after the Lord. But as we know, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. But then you've not got to make the determination what happens when every link is weakened. It's good for nothing. And so the people were the ones who were suffering because the worship, I'm sorry, the leadership was defiled. The leadership were, was not fulfilling their And so the illustration here comes from a common phrase of prosperity during that time. Every bottle shall be filled with wine. You know things are good in a society when every bottle is going to be filled with wine. If they would elect the king, he would be promising them wine in every bottle. A comparable phase would be a chicken in every pot. Everybody will be provided for. But God gives this warning, verse 14 to politicians, to leaders who claim that all is well, when in fact all is not well. He says, I will dash them one against another, even the fathers and the sons together, says the Lord. I will not pity nor have pity nor spare nor have mercy, but will destroy them. Speaking of drinking, not necessarily alcohol, but just in general, all humanity in actuality it has two cups that are placed before him. One of those cups, and it's a choice that everybody is going to make, which one you're going to drink from. First one we see in Psalm 116, verse 13, I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Or there's another choice. It's the second cup, Isaiah 51, 17. Awake, awake, uh, awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. All humanity will drink from one cup or the other. It's either the cup of the salvation or it's the cup of judgment. They have chosen this illustration, this cup of judgment. But the choice is ours. But the choice is ours because it's based upon a choice that Jesus Christ made. Jesus Christ drank from the cup of judgment so that we would be able to drink from the cup of salvation. Remember the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane? Mark 14, 36, and he, Jesus, said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. The cup, that's the cup of judgment. Jesus Christ, upon the cross, took upon, and he drank from that cup. He took judgment upon himself. 
Why? Because he took the sins of the world upon himself. We're celebrating the coming of a baby here in a month or so, less than a month now, but we have to realize the reason for the coming of that baby. It's for that the sins of the world would be able to come upon this sacrificial lamb so that all who would believe on him would not perish, but have everlasting life. It's Jesus at that time. In in the Garden of Gethsemane, again, we saw the stress and and sweating so much that that blood came out. And and, and Lord, uh, God, or Father is how we referred to him, if it be your will, take this cup from me. Because Jesus knew not so much of the scourging or the crucifixion, but of sin coming upon absolute purity. But he understood there was no other way. And so we're told that he set his face like flint before the cross, that he went in obedience to the cross so that we would not have to drink of the cup of judgment, that we would be able to take up the cup of salvation. Thirdly, we have the parable of the path, verses 15 through 17. Hear and give ear, do not be proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before his cause, uh, before he causes darkness, and before your feet stumble on the dark mountains, and while you are looking for light, and he turns it to the shadow of death and makes it dense darkness. But if you will not hear it, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Have you ever gone on a night hike? Night hike can be very dangerous, even with a flashlight. It's dangerous because it's hard to see the stumbling points. And especially if you're on a narrow trail, you could get hurt quite seriously. And what you tend to do on a a night hike, especially if you're in a forest, you're looking down because you're not wanting to stumble and you're looking at the trail, it's easy to get hit in the head with a branch as well. We had our men's retreat up in Mammoth quite a while ago, our fishing trip. On the way back, I remember looking at Mount Whitney. Mount Whitney is kind of a daunting view. It's just a real rugged landscape. It's the highest point in Southern California. I think in all of California. Anyway, looking at that and just seeing there was clouds over it, and it's just kind of, just kind of, just real daunting. It's just hard to ex- explain. Came home a Sunday night. The next day, I'm reading in the newspaper, and a young man got killed up there that weekend. He was climbing, doing rock climbing, mountain climbing, whatever they were doing up there. And a friend of his went back, him, him and his friend went back to camp. It was towards the end of the day. It started getting dark, and this one guy said, I'm going to go back out and do some more climbing. And the guy said, it's too dark. And he goes, no, I'm going to go, go and do it. And he went and did it. Very prideful man. He went, and somewhere along the line, he fell, and he died. I went to high school with him. It was kind of an amazing thing. I, I knew this young man, this man, young man at the time. That's what really gripped me about it. But he was a prideful man. I can see him doing what he did, and it cost him his life. And so God is saying, as we walk this path, as we walk that trail, we need to walk in the light, not in the darkness, because it is dark, and dark is dangerous. And that's what Israel was doing, or Judah, the southern kingdom. They were walking that path in darkness, and it was a very dangerous path. If you choose to walk the path of the world illuminated by your pride, you're going to die. Proverbs 14, 12 tells us there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it's simply the way of death. If you take the path of the Lord illuminated by his word, 
you will live. Psalm 119.105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Problem, we'll evaluate the pathway based upon what seems to be the safest way. But God says, take my way, even though it may seem more dangerous at times. It may seem more daunting at times, but I'll light the way. But the thing about it is, God doesn't light up the whole path. He just gives you enough light for the next step. And as you take that step, he's faithful, and he illuminates the next step. I mean, think about that. Isn't that so true? You've got this dark path, and you don't know where it leads. You you don't know the dangers that are on it, but God says, take that step, and he lights it, and you take that step. And you just keep going. As long as you're going forward, and as long as you're taking steps in obedience to God, he's going to continue to illuminate that path, and you're safe. Never is he going to leave you in the darkness. Never is he going to leave you in despair. So whatever hardship that you are going through or maybe going to go through or have gone through, you can give testimony. God illuminated every step of the way. It was a hard path. Some of it may be a pretty steep incline or decline or whatever. There may be many stumbling points on it, but nonetheless, God still illuminated it. One thing that you can't do is claim to have faith and try to cause God to illuminate a way. Well, I'm just going to have faith and go because it's not faith itself. It's having faith in God and what God has called you or told you to do. And I guarantee you, if that path is not right, but you truly believe that it is, God will illuminate the way and bring you on the proper path if you're a pure of heart. But it's just to move in God's direction and understand the goodness of God. In Psalm 23, verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God's advice to those who are on the wrong path. Look at verse 15. Hear and give ear. Do not be proud, for the Lord has spoken. If you've wandered away on the wrong path, if you've taken off in that dark path and wandered off into outer darkness, God is saying, you can make the U-turn, you can come back. And matter of fact, I guarantee you this, if you walk down a darkened path and you repent, if you decide that you want to come back to a right place, God will even illuminate the way coming back into right standing with him. Here when he says, hear and give ear, the idea is, is to have an ear for the word of God. Do not be proud. See yourself as a sinner and die to your pride. Understand that you've gone according to your way and you're not walking according to God's way. And then thirdly, for the Lord has spoken. And the idea is to repent and come to Christ. Come to the word. Come to Christ and God will forgive and God will redirect. He's a God who is so gracious. And then we have this parable of the royal family, verses 18 through 19. So say to the king and to the queen mother, humble yourselves, sit down, for your rule shall collapse the crown of your glory. The cities of the south shall be shut up, and no one shall open them. Judah shall be carried away captive. All of it, it shall be wholly carried away captive. A prophetic reality that came to pass. This is something that Israel never thought would happen just simply because they're Israel. Just simply because we're God's people and we have all of these promises, but it was always predicated upon their obedience. And so I've got great promises as a Christian. 
I've got great confidence in the grace of God, and God's able to keep me to the day that I will be with him forever. But I also need to see that if I'm truly a born-again believer, then I need to cling to him in obedience. It's that which is going to give me a confidence in my failures, times when I do sin, and times when things get hard. But it's that obedience to God's call that is going to give me a surety of the reality of my salvation. Well, this prophecy came to pass in March of 597, King Jehoiachin. Now, there's Jehoiakim, who's on the throne at the time of this giving. His son, Jehoiachin, will surrender Jerusalem to Babylon. Babylon is going to come, and he's going to destroy. There's going to come that time when, well, King Belshazzar of Babylon, later on from here, during Daniel's day in Daniel chapter 5, there's going to come that time when the writing is on the wall. It was on the wall for him. The writing was in the book for Israel. They should have known because it came through the prophet. But in Daniel chapter 5, you sure have heard of the story, verse 22, but you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all of this. And the kings of Israel, especially Jehoiachin, who surrendered, he could have gotten right with the Lord. He could have repented and come back, and God would have relented. Verse 23, And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine, notice the parallels, from them, and have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all of your ways, you have not glorified. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him, and this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written, many, many tekel euphorsin. This is the interpretation. So Daniel is giving the interpretation to this king. If you're unaware of the story, they were partying with these implements that they had taken from the temple when they conquered Jerusalem. And one day, this man, one evening, this man, Belshazzar, although he was surrounded by the enemy, he took comfort in the walls that they had built, and they were throwing a party. And he blasphemed God. He said, hey, why don't you bring those vessels out? We'll party with those tonight. And that's what he was doing. And as he was doing that, this finger appeared and wrote on the wall, and nobody could tell him what it was. His mother reminded him, there is a man in the kingdom who's able to discern these things. We know that to be Daniel, and that's what Daniel had just uh, spoken to him. Verse 25, and this is the inscription that was written, many, many, tekel euphorsin. And this is the interpretation of each word, many. God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Peres, euphorsin, your kingdom has divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That's all fine and dandy, but then when you read the rest, you see that that wasn't worth a pile of beans. Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. But the point is, is that the writing was on the wall. He should have known these things. That writing was a final proclamation of the judgment that was to come. But this man, Belshazzar, he was accountable before God because he should have known. He'd seen the things that God did with his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, and he should have recognized God for who he was. But he didn't. He blasphemed God. It's the same thing 
that the Jewish kings did as well. Both northern kingdom and southern kingdom, they blasphemed God. What hope do we have as a nation? What hope do we have as a nation for whom much has been given, much is expected? And our nation, we know. And this nation, talking about the nation as a whole, we've turned very far from God. Proverbs sixteen eighteen: pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. And then lastly, we have the parable of the delinquent daughter. Here we see five questions of examination for the purpose of making an evaluation. First question is in verse 20, where are the sheep that you were supposed to be tending? It says, lift up your eyes and see. Those who come from the north were the flock that was given to you, or where is the flock that was given to you, your beautiful sheep? Since the sheep were given to the shepherds, they weren't the shepherd's sheep. These shepherds were given stewardship over these sheep. We know that these are the leaders who were given stewardship over God's people, and they're being held accountable here. And so once again, we've got to make that consideration. If you're a born-again believer here tonight, you're a leader. There's somebody in your life that is less mature than you that looks to you as who a born-again believer is supposed to be, who a Christian is supposed to be. And so we're all accountable, accountable in this area. We have to give a good account of the riches, God's people, whom he has been given or who he has given to us. In 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 2, it says, So let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. How do you evaluate a shepherd as far as what kind of shepherd he is? The condition of his sheep. You want to know what kind of leader you are? Look at the condition of the people God has given you to lead. Second question is in verse 21. Who are these companions who have become chieftains? What will you say, verse 21, what will you say when he punishes you? For you have taught them to be chieftains, to be head over you. Will not pang seize you like a woman in labor? They were companions. He's talking about the surrounding nations. You were companions with them, but at some point, something changed. You got friendly with these nations, and now these nations are going to rule over you. Judah kept strengthening their alliances and their dependencies with the countries that were surrounding them to the detriment of their relationship with the Lord. So when it came time that they needed a hand of God, it was these people who they had depended upon that became their enemies. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Third question, the last part of verse 21, will not your situation come upon you suddenly, thoroughly, and overwhelmingly as a woman in childbirth? And it says, will not pang seize you like a woman in labor? When my first child, when my son was born, she was, what, she was actually over nine months pregnant, like nine months and two weeks almost. And, but we went to bed like we always went to bed. But boom, in the middle of the night, it's time. And from that moment on, our lives were never the same. It was good, but that's the illustration that is being used. When it comes time, and there is that appointed time, and a woman who is pregnant when she enters into that time to give birth to that child. See, ladies, I can tell you all about this. I'm an expert. Um, when it comes that time, there ain't no turning back at that point. It's going to happen. 
in 1 Thessalonians 5.3, speaking of the precursor to judgment, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Fourth question, verse 22, why have these things come upon you? Verse 22, and if you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? For the greatness of your iniquity, your skirts have been uncovered, and your heels made bare. Not because you've broken my heart, but because you have broken well, not because you've broken my law, but because you have broken my heart. And the idea is, is that this person is an adulteress, that they've gone after these other gods. And then the last question, verse 23, can you do good, can you do good those who are prone to evil? Verse 23, can the Ethiopians change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. It says, it's according to your nature. And, and you keep going contrary to me. You're going contrary to me as you go according to your nature. And it's that which we need to set aside, even flee from, and we need to cling to the Lord. And then lastly, the resulting judgment, verses 24 through 27. Now this is the judgment that an adulteress would receive. Therefore I will scatter them like stubble and pass away by the wind of the wilderness. That passes away by the wind of the wilderness. This is your lot, the portion of your measures from me, says the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in Therefore, I will uncover your skirts over your face that your shame may appear. I have seen your adulteries and your lusty names, the lewdness of your harlotry, your abominations on the hills and the fields. Woe, Jerusalem, will you not be made clean? And remember what happens when there's a question asked in the Bible? 99% of the time, the answer is always going to be to the negative, And that's implied here. Will you not be made clean? And the answer is no. Not as they're seeking after false gods. Not as they're going after the ways of the world. Because of those things, judgment is coming. Once again, we need to make this applicable to our lives. It's essential, it's important that we do because the same God that gave this message back then is the God who doesn't change today. Yes, we got the grace of God, but we ought not to take the grace of God for granted. We need to see that we keep ourselves from the world, the ways of the world, and again, cling to the Lord. Father, once again, we just thank you, God, that you have given us this time. We pray, Father, that we would take inventory of our lives. Father, if there's any place of our lives, any area of our lives that we have compromised, I pray, Father, that you would reveal it and that we would make the necessary changes. And so, Father, we just lift up tonight to you, thanking you, God, that we have this time. Thank you, Father, that we have this opportunity for fellowship. Just praying that you would go before us and bless us in all that we do, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We all stand, please? And as I said, I was going to be part of the closing song here tonight. We have a cake outside. Tonight is Anne's birthday. <laughs> and so we're going to close by singing happy birthday to Anne. So let's all join in. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Anne. Happy birthday to you. And many more. You going to do a song? Yeah, yeah we were going <laughs> to. All right, go for it.
Do you guys want to sing another song, another Christmas 